Hey, my name is Buzz, and with me is Long. Welcome to Bento Bureau, the podcast about Japan from an international perspective. Japanese people often claim that they are not religious. In fact, many will describe Japan as a society where religion either does not exist or has slowly died out. These are the words of scholar Ian Reader in his book on contemporary Japanese religions. Nevertheless, a quick trip down a shrine or temple in any city, and you will witness a completely different picture. A mother teaching her kids to wash their hands before entering a shrine. A grandma clapping her hand and bowing in prayer. Students buying and attaching amulets to their backpacks for good luck. Such are a few examples of the myriad of religious activities Japanese people practice. So, how do the Japanese practice religion? How does it compare to others around the world? With us today is Professor Edward Drott. He is an associate professor at Sophia University who has had more than 20 years of research on Japanese religions. In today's episode, Professor Drott will introduce five approaches to understanding religion in Japan. So, Professor, let's get straight into it. At the topic of Japanese religion, what made you interested in the topic of studying religion in the first place? I guess when I was at university, I figured that's a good place to take classes uh, on topics that might not seem what, like they're going to be so immediately. Um, you know, practical, but sort of topics that might interest you. And as I got more and more uh, into taking religion classes, I re- realized that um, religion itself actually、um, has a big impact on our lives, whether we're fully conscious of that or not. And that this was something that is a very deep topic, something that I could continue exploring for the rest of my life. And how I got interested in Japanese religion in particular, I was raised in a Protestant household where basically religion meant every Sunday you put on nice clothes, you go to church, you hear a sermon, you know, a little lecture about how we're supposed to live. There's a sacred book that again teaches you how you're supposed to live.、Um, there's a Deity, you believe in that deity, you're good. That's religion. And then in college, I'm taking classes, you know, on say Zen Buddhism, and I get into this class and I'm learning about these strange stories about monks coming up and asking each other strange questions, like、um, does a dog have Buddha nature, or Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? And then the master will answer with some sort of nonsense. You know, the answer might be the cypress tree in the garden, or the master slaps the disciple,、um, and the disciple has a great revelation. And I just couldn't understand how that could still be religion. And from everything I learned about religion in Japan, there was no going to church every Sunday. 
there was no single sacred text. Um, there were very few, if any, opportunities to sit and hear a sermon or a lecture. Um, so I got interested just in how religion could take so many different forms around the world and just interested in what it would be like to live in a culture where religion might mean sitting quietly and watching your, your breath for 40 minutes as opposed to, yeah, you know, hearing a sermon or thinking about ethics or things like that. So, I mean, that's sort of in a nutshell how I got interested in religion in Japan. Speaking of different forms of religion, I myself am a Muslim. Mm -hmm. I was born in Britain uh, with a Muslim family, mm -hmm. all ethnically Palestinian. Mm. So we all speak Arabic in the household. Mm -hmm. We later on went to live in Qatar. So mm -hmm. I lived in a Muslim country for quite a, uh, a significant portion of my life. Mm -hmm. So I know what it's like to be affected by religion right. in my lifestyle. And when I came to Japan, uh, I did not feel like there was a strong sense of religion right. in terms of the religion that I know, mm -hmm. that I grew up with. Sure. In fact, many people tend to coin the phrase about Japan, an atheist mecca. Right. <laughs> so when we're talking about Japanese religion, mm -hmm. what religions are we talking about? I'm aware that there is the form of Buddhism called Shintoism, but right. I'm ashamed to say that I actually don't know all that much about Shintoism because my Japanese friends don't know that much. Right. They don't have much to tell me. So could you elaborate more about what type of religions are we talking about? Right. I mean, if we wanted to analyze Japanese religions in, term of, in terms of separate traditions, uh, we could say that the two major forms of religion we find in Japan are, as you noted, uh, Buddhism, and then, on the other hand, Shinto. And generally, Shinto is described as Japan's native religion, because this is the, the religion that centers on the worship of kami, which are gods that are believed to inhabit sort of all different parts of the natural environment. And we have evidence that there was some form of kami veneration in Japan from very ancient times, prior to the time when the Japanese state started actively importing continental ideologies. So that's why it tends to be regarded as a, a kind of indigenous faith of Japan. However, historians will often try to kind of add some nuance and some complexity to that definition because anyone who studies Japanese history can see that kami veneration has changed a lot over the centuries. So it's not quite accurate to say that the Shinto that we see today is, say, identical to what Japanese religion was in ancient times. But I think that a strong case could be made that it is, you know, something that's drawing on these, these ancient traditions. And then for Buddhism, this is, of course, a religion that comes to Japan from the continent. Buddhism originates in India, um, makes its way into East Asia, marinates in Chinese culture, for a couple hundred years, and then finally, by way of Korea, makes its way into Japan as well. So those are the two major religious traditions. We could also add to that Confucianism. Some people have 
problems calling Confucianism a religion, uh, but I think there are good reasons to consider it a religion. But Confucianism is sort of an invisible religion in Japan because it never has uh, a priesthood or any kind of institutional presence in Japan. Nonetheless, Confucian teachings are very, very important in early Japanese history, and then really throughout Japanese history, people have kind of turned to Confucianism as um, either uh, a ruling ideology or as a, a sort of moral or, or ethical set of guidelines. And I think that you can find evidence of, of Confucian values uh, almost wherever you look in Japan. So we, call, we could call Confucianism another religious tradition. But very often when we're talking about religion in Japan, if we visit a particular religious site, we're going to actually see elements of all of these traditions sort of mixed together and blended. So in some sense, it makes sense to think about these as separate religions that exist in Japan. But in another sense, it almost makes more sense to just think of Japanese religion as this, this amalgamation of different elements from different parts of the world, including Taoism, which is another sort of style of religious thought and practice that becomes very influential in Japan, but like Confucianism, never has an institutional presence here. And I guess we should also m mention Christianity. Uh, there's a, a, a small portion of the country that are, that are Christian. And then there are also what we would call new religious movements that crop up in the 19th century and then more crop up in the 20th and 21st century, which are very similar to the kinds of New Age religions, the new religions that you find all over the world, where they'll sometimes be sampling from Hinduism or Tantra or even like Christian ideas about, you know, the end of the world coming and, and just sort of, you know, mixing it all up together and forming something new. Thank you very much for giving us the historical background of Japanese religions mm -hmm. and how they intertwine with each other to create what we call so the Japanese religion right. as an idea. Mm. So that brings us to the topic of our discussion today, which are the five features mm. of our five themes of Japanese religion. Right. So can you give the listener who might not have any idea about mm -hmm. what Japanese religions are, uh, the look at the five themes that we're going to talk about today? Right. These are basically five generalizations that scholars have at times made about religion in Japan just as a way of orienting us when we start to undertake a study of Japanese religion. These are not themes that any one scholar necessarily might bring up in their writing, but they're themes that I've seen scholars comment on and I've kind of picked them up and grouped them together in my teaching, particularly because uh, for students who have a similar background to, to you or I, who come to Japan, we might be confused about where the religion is or what, um, what we can qual qualify as religious, because it doesn't look a lot like the religious traditions that we've been exposed to. So these five themes or generalizations are just a way of getting us to think differently about religion so that we can start to recognize what's going on over here in its own context. So the first one that I would generally introduce is this notion that 
um, in Japanese religion, there tends to be an emphasis on orthopraxy over orthodoxy. And orthodoxy, most students are familiar with, means a concern for um, understanding and abiding by the correct doctrine. So ortho is from the Greek meaning straight, which basically comes to mean correct. Orthopraxy basically means a concern for the right practice. And I should say at the outset that like any kinds of generalizations, there are always exceptions to these rules. So part of what I like to do in class is ask students to find situations where we might be looking at a particular religious group or a particular religious ideology that seems to conflict with these generalizations. Nonetheless, I think on the whole, they, they tend to um, be borne out by the data. So like as an example of a concern for orthopraxy over orthodoxy, you know, you very often will find people in Japan engaged in a kind of religious practice. They know that there's a proper way of doing it. You know, you're supposed to ring the bell, then bow twice, then clap once, and then bow, you know, another time or whatever the particular regime is. But if you ask them to explain, you know, why is it that things have to be done in that order, only very rarely would people have an explanation for why they're doing things a certain way. The other classic example that I like to use is that of the novice uh, monk in the Zen monastery will be instructed in the first weeks or months of training on how to sit properly, how to attain this posture, the meditation posture, and will be told, now you're going to breathe in this particular way, and what you're going to be doing now is just watching your breath. And I think that at least in North America, when we think of meditation, we would tend to have uh, an image of someone engaged in some sort of introspection, maybe thinking about God or thinking about the meaning of their life or, or reflecting on doctrine or ideas or philosophy or something. But these monks are not given anything to be thinking about. They're just told to be doing something and they're going to be evaluated strictly on how well they're doing it. And again, they're not going to, it's not going to be explained this is why you have to sit this way, or this is what your practice is supposed to be getting towards. All of that comes later. So clearly the, the practice is very often put first. And in some cases you can even find religions in Japan explicitly saying it's not important to understand what you're doing. Um, the important thing is the doing. And from the doing, you're going to have insights and you're going to learn what it's all about but first just do. So that's the first theme. That's very interesting coming from a Muslim who like growing up and being taught to read the Quran and, and praying five times a day, the, the sheikh or imam who mm -hmm. would speak to me would try and explain to me why I'm doing everything mm -hmm. and give me wider implications. It's the first time I actually found out that there are religions that trying to push practice and mm -hmm. through practice you kind of grasp the wider implications through the practice itself. That's quite interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, one of the interesting things that scholars of religion have found is even if you go to cultures where people feel like the explanation 
of practice is important. Very often, if you interview different people from different regions or different you know, mosques or different communities, churches, the, the explanations might even differ from place mm. to place. So even if you're from a culture that thinks orthodoxy is important, very often there's more variation, there's more sort of ambiguity within orthodoxy than, than many people would acknowledge. But yes, but, but in Japan, I also found that really fascinating that, that there's so much of an emphasis on, on procedure mm. and on doing things correctly. And yeah, that this notion that by doing things correctly, you start to um, awaken something inside yourself that will tell you like why you're doing that. That's a very interesting notion in itself too. So the second theme, although I'm not really going in any particular order, that I would introduce is that Japanese religions tend to show a concern for purity and pollution. And this is usually associated with, with Shinto, but Buddhism in Japan also shows a major concern for purity and pollution. And so the classic example is before you enter a sacred site in Japan, most often shrines, but also temples very often, you'll find a little basin at the entrance and a little ladle, and you're expected to wash your hands off and rinse your mouth out, um, symbolically purifying yourself before you enter mm. Similar to space. Islam. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, I mean, it kind of ties back to orthopraxy again. I, I also have a slide of the instructions that you will sometimes find in, in the little outbuilding with the basin showing that there's a proper way to be purifying yourself. First this hand, then this hand, then the mouth. But, but purity and pollution are also very often used as metaphors in Japanese religion. So rather than talking about salvation, sometimes you will find religious texts talking about purifying one's heart as being the goal of the, the religion, mm. that we're all kind of born with a sort of open, emotionally pure kind of sense of humanity, but that as we live, gradually some sort of dust starts to pile up on that, that heart, that pure heart that we all have within us. And that through engaging in some sort of ritual or some sort of religious practice, we're able to wipe away that dust and return to this pure, more like original, uh, more natural, more relaxed state of being. And so very often people will describe, you know, say going to a shrine or a temple and coming out feeling very refreshed. And they might use this language of purification, that they feel like their heart has been purified. So it's a way of sort of re revitalizing or rejuvenating themselves. So, so that becomes a very important aspect of, of religion in Japan. Not just physical purity, but also this sort of symbolic or metaphorical purity. Mm. So pollution relates to it refers to the pollution of one's heart and purity, not necessarily re related to anything in regards to the environment, perhaps? It, it can refer to both. Okay. Um, so in the pre-modern period, you get more of a sense that people were worried about pollution quite literally. And, you know, there were certain taboos that um, also ended up leading to uh, different forms of discrimination. 
So the most obvious example, blood was seen as a polluting substance. So women who have this biological fact that they're going to bleed, at least women of a certain age, are going to bleed every month, were therefore sometimes excluded from certain sacred mountains because it was believed that uh, if a woman were to be menstruating while she was on the sacred grounds, that that would either anger the, the, the gods or the kami who were there, or it would render the, the rituals that were being performed by Buddhists uh, ineffective, that pollution would actually somehow mess up the rituals that were being conducted to say, protect the state or, you know, um, ensure a good harvest or something like that. So, so women basically were excluded from, from certain sacred sites. In the modern period, you hear a lot more about pollution and purity as, as metaphors, um, although that discourse also exists in, in earlier periods too. I noticed something interesting about purity and pollution in which certain aspect of pollution you can be purified like mm -hmm. your hand you can wash your hands right. your heart you can purify your heart mm -hmm. by going to the shrine and pray there mm. but certain type of pollution like you just mentioned menstruating giving right. birth that cannot be purified had to be shooed away what do you think about these ideas I, i think you're on to something very important like one point that scholars have raised when talking about this concern for purity and pollution especially in early japan is that it differs from a consciousness of sin. There, there's no sense that, that purity or pollution is necessarily your fault. A lot of the times people are defiled just by through no fault of their own. You know, they, they come in contact with a dead animal on the road. They are now polluted and they have to undertake some sort of ritual to, to cleanse themselves. So there's no like moral taint associated with and it, with it. And as you describe, there are things you can do to purify yourself, to remedy that situation. On the other hand, there are cases where pollution comes to be seen as like an essential trait of certain kinds of people. And this actually develops more in like the medieval and the Tokugawa period, which is basically roughly, you know, we might say from you know, the 9th, 10th century on to, you know, the, the 19th century. And what ends up happening is that certain groups of people come to be regarded as, as polluted due to their occupation. You know, for example, if you're a butcher, Buddhists regard taking life as, you know, not something you should be doing. And so, therefore, they come up with explanations about how maybe in a previous life, you had done something wrong and therefore as a result of that karma you've been reborn as a person who now is sort of stuck with this kind of uh, insalubrious polluting occupation and, and more and more especially in the Tokugawa period communities start to be kind of segregated such that you end up with a weird situation in modern Japan where you have actual minority groups in Japan who are nonetheless ethnically Japanese. There's absolutely no way to distinguish them from other Japanese, but because they are like part of this community with this history, uh, they would be regarded as kind of outcasts. And so 
legally from the Meiji period, from the 19th century on, these classifications were eliminated, but people sometimes continue to, to think in these kind of outmoded ways and might be suspicious, for example, about that guy who's dating your daughter. You know, does he come from one of these groups? I want to say that this sort of discrimination is, is vanishing, but I'm not really sure if it's, it's completely vanished or vanishing. Yeah, you you were speaking about burakumin, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Correct? That's right. Yeah, we actually did an episode on that a few months ago. It's quite mm-hmm. an, we learned quite a lot, but we didn't really learn about the uh, potential religious aspect of it. We learned right. more about perhaps the political right. decision behind right that, like about the merchant class and right. trying to keep them in check. So right. creating a class that puts them above someone else. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, it's it's a complicated issue and you know, maybe my description of it here uh gives too strong an impression that we can draw a straight line from these practices of practices of discrimination in the pre-modern period to the formation of that Budakumin class. Um because it, scholars would argue that that actually there isn't such a straight line, but it's enough to say that yes, the the forms of discrimination that we found in the medieval period were related to religious ideology, basically. Mm-hmm. Not so much later. Yeah. Well, that that's opening up an entire new subject, but mm-hmm. perhaps we should move on to the the third third one. So, a third one that I would bring up is that Japanese religions tend to be combinatory, which as I mentioned earlier, there's a kind of openness. Religious traditions have porous boundaries. They, they would tend to kind of borrow liberally from other uh, traditions and mix and match. So this is true of Shinto, which as I mentioned, what we see as Shinto today is very different from what it would have been in the ancient period. And even though people continue to think of Shinto as somehow purely Japanese kind of religion. Over the centuries, it's really incorporated elements from Buddhism, from Taoism, from Confucianism, Neo-Confucianism, and sort of stirred them up and melted them together to the point where, yes, we can say that, you know, there is no other example of something exactly like Shinto anywhere else in the world. But to say that it's, quote-unquote, purely Japanese is misleading. Similarly, Japanese Buddhism has clearly undergone many changes and adopted different aspects of different religious traditions in Japan. So most, maybe the most interesting example of this is in, for most of Japanese history, the kami were mainly worshipped in Buddhist settings by Buddhist priests. Like Buddhism was the dominant religion of Japan for most of its history, and so most kami didn't have like a shrine with a resident priest. Instead, it would be, you know, Buddhists who were kind of in charge of performing rituals to help them out, reciting sutras to enlighten them, um, making offerings and things like that. And in fact, for most of Japanese history, you didn't have strictly demarcated Shinto sites and Buddhist sites. There would have been these compounds where you could find different buildings dedicated to different Buddhist figures, bodhisattvas, Buddhas, but also like gods that had been brought with Buddhism 
from India or China. And then maybe there'd also be little shrines devoted to local gods, you know, which we would call kami. But again, this would all be sort of mixed up and people visiting these sites wouldn't say, well, I'm a Shintoist, so I'm not visiting the Buddhist sites. I'm only visiting the, the kami sites. Everyone would venerate everything pretty much equally. And it's only in the, uh, the Meiji period in the 19th century where the government looks to Europe for examples of how to sort of reorganize um, itself. And that's where intellectuals start saying, we, you know, we look at religion and the way it's practiced abroad, we find a situation where people are members of one particular tradition or sect. We need to do something similar with religion in Japan. It's all mixed up and that's no good. And so they actually pass a law separating Buddhism and Shinto. And all of these sites had to decide, are you going to be a Buddhist temple? Are you going to be a Shinto shrine? Or what was often the case is they would sort of like draw a line down the middle of these complexes and everything on this side becomes the shrine, everything on that side becomes the temple. So still in Japan today, if you find a temple, you're very likely to find a shrine nearby. And, and probably before the Meiji period, they would have just been one sacred space. And the other reason that the Meiji government did this is because it decided that it was going to promote Shinto as a, a kind of national religion to try to unify the state. But you know, even though they, they make these efforts to separate Shinto and Buddhism, it's never 100% successful. So even today, I think it's fair to call Japanese religion combinatory because um, as anyone who's been to a Buddhist temple will tell you, there are plenty of kami um, still enshrined there. Usually they're acting as some sort of protectors of the temple. And then similarly, if you go to a Shinto shrine, they're likely to have different kinds of Buddhist icons there as well. And you, you will sometimes find people going to one site or the other and thinking they're going to a temple when actually they're going to a shrine or vice versa. Very often people in Japan aren't really clear about the difference and don't really care too much either. Mm, I think we can attend to that, especially as foreigners who are living in Japan. Mm -hmm. Every time we go to a temple or a shrine, we can't even separate between what is the temple, what is the shrine, are they the same thing? And even right. when you go to one religious site, you can't even tell if it's Shinto or is it Buddhist. Yep. Right. So that's uh, like a common experience that not only Japanese people, but also people from outside of Japan as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember one time going with a family that I was living with. Hatsumode is this big New Year's celebration where everyone is supposed to visit a shrine on New Year's Day. It's the first shrine visit of the year, and this is to sort of purify you for the, the coming year, get rid of all of your kind of bad feeling that's accrued from the previous year. And so, you know, it supposedly is some sort of Shinto thing. And so this, this Japanese family takes me to this place, and, you know, we're lining up to make our prayers or whatever, and I'm looking around and I say, this isn't a shrine, this is a temple. The father is saying, no, no, it's a shrine. I say, but look at that, you know, and there's, you know, there's no Tori gate and, you know, that's a Buddhist symbol there. What? And they're, you know, getting out their little guidebooks and looking around. And I mean, in the end, it was probably one of these ambiguous sites where it was all kind of mixed together, but, but they were just as perplexed as I. And, you know, who cares? People sometimes go to temple for uh, Hatsumode and, you know, I'm sure the kami don't mind. 
How about we move on to the last two of the Right. Um, group orientation. Right. I mean, like I'm, I was saying before, you find exceptions to all of these. So you certainly do find examples from Japanese religion where people are very much oriented towards their own personal salvation. But, you know, coming out of a Protestant Christian background, you, you, you get the very strong impression that religion, yeah, there's church and all of that, but really it's, it's about your personal relationship with the divine being. You know, that that's sort of one of the, the features of Protestantism is that instead of having the church or the pope mediating your relationship with the divine, the individual has to get right with God. And I think that religious studies itself developed in Europe, which was heavily, you know, kind of Protestantized, um, at least the parts of Europe that were producing religion scholars. And so there was a tendency to take that same kind of lens out into the world when it went looking at religion. And so a lot of what, what people in Japan do religiously maybe doesn't even look like religion. So, you know, the example could be the festival, uh, which looks like just a sort of big party uh, where um, certain times of the year, the local community will come together to essentially celebrate the main god of a given shrine and give it a little tour of the local neighborhood on this palanquin, sort of one of these carriages which people actually carry around, sort of like a litter, like what a king or some sort of person of authority would have been carried around on uh, in the pre-modern period. So the, the god is actually transferred to one of these portable shrines um, and, and carried around the local community. And you'll see pictures of this, or if you actually participate in one, there's a lot of alcohol involved and people are kind of rowdy and jostling into each other, but you definitely get a real sense of communal effervescence, which, you know, there might be dancing and these kinds of activities. And this is sort of how, you know, people end up encountering religion for the most part in Japan is through these communal uh, activities. Speaking of alcohol in these parties, well, I don't drink this, not, not, not related, but mm-hmm. I was just curious, is there, is there, is there a role of sake in, in Shintoism by any chance? Yes. Um, so sake is seen as one of a few purifying substances. Salt, fire, water, uh, and sake are the main things that are believed to be able to um, purify you. And so sometimes you see sake described, I mean, obviously quite literally it does have some sort of antibacterial property, same way salt would. But the way that I've seen it described that I particularly liked was that, you know, when you go to one of these festivals and you're drinking, yeah, it, it allows you to kind of leave behind the, the anxieties and stresses of your everyday life. Mm. And, um, yeah, it gives you a sense of, of purification, emotional, um, purification or catharsis. And so it's another way that, uh, purity is used as a kind of, um, metaphor. We've been speaking for about 40, 40 minutes. So mm. let's wrap this up with the last observation, which is, which is, this life in this world. Yeah, the, the fifth theme that I introduce is that Japanese religions tend to be concerned with this world benefit 
or this worldly benefits. The Japanese term for this is genzei ryaku. This is a term I think coined by scholars to describe this phenomenon. So what you'll very often find is that people, when they engage in religious activity, although again there are going to be exceptions, um, there are sometimes when they're engaged in these activities because they're concerned for their well-being in the afterlife, which is what, again, I think probably many people consider to be the main goal of religion, is to, to, to get, make sure that you have a good afterlife. And for that reason, people who go to pray for benefits in this life or in this world uh, might feel that what they're doing is not properly called religion, um, and probably other people from other religious traditions might agree with them and say, well, that's just some sort of superstitious uh, or like magical um, activity. You can't really call it religion if you're going to pray, for example, for success um, on an entrance exam or going to pray for the health of your family. Shouldn't you be more concerned about going to heaven? Isn't that what religion's all about? But I guess the way that I try to frame it is to say that whether you're praying for a benefit in the other life or praying for a benefit in this life, in either case, you're praying for some sort of benefit. So I think we can, uh, we don't need to call one religious and the other superstitious or, or magical. But yeah, you do find examples, as I was saying, in Japan of people very concerned about the afterlife. And in fact, you know, funeral and memorial rites are a major part of um, Japanese religiosity. You know, the major way in which many people in Japan come in contact with Buddhism is through either the funeral for their loved ones or memorial rites to hopefully ensure the, the peace and well-being of their loved ones wherever they may be. But nonetheless, when you see people going to, say, Hatsumode or going to um, just shrines or temples, say, uh, when someone gets pregnant, they might go and get this sash that they'll tie around their belly to help ensure that their child grows and is born safely. People will sometimes get little talismans or good luck charms to help them, you know, with traffic safety, academic success, success in business. But I, th I think we shouldn't also maybe get the impression that, that people are engaging in these activities for purely selfish reasons. Very often when people are making these prayers, um, it's not just their own success that they're concerned about. You know, they want their business to survive or thrive because of their employees' well-being as well, or they want to do well on the test to um, please their parents or their family. So this is also maybe a reflection of the group orientation uh, that we find in Japanese religion. Anyway, so those are the five generalizations, themes that I introduce just to give people a basic sense of what religion in Japan is all about. And also just to give them a sense of how, even though it might not look like religion in other parts of the world, there's still some sort of common religious motivations at work here. Thank you very much, Professor Draw, for giving us very insightful details on Japanese religions through these five themes. Mm. Well, personally, I think after this discussion, I'd be more, be more uh, curious every time I visit a temple. I, would, I think I would more inclined to figure out if it's a temple or a shrine for now. <laughs> I'm glad to hear <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. And I, who are the kami or the bodhisattva mm -hmm. who are enshrined there? Mm. So it opens a new, a new door for me personally. 
Great. And I hope that our listeners will also find that helpful. I hope so. Does you have something to say? Uh, yeah, just before we finish the episode, I'm just curious about Christianity in mm. Japan. Uh, I know there. Every time I go out to a new place, there's all, there always seems to be churches around Tokyo, mm-hmm. right? certain areas of Tokyo, and I was always curious about that, um, the role of Christianity in Japan. And I watched this movie a while ago, but I forgot the name. Um, Silence. Silence. Mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese. Mm. Yeah, it's about um, a preacher mm-hmm. from uh, a Christian preacher who right. goes to Japan and he's in prison. I was always, yeah, it was, it was quite fascinating that right. Christianity came to Japan so long ago. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure, yeah. Towards the late medieval period, Jesuit missionaries arrive in Japan. And at first, there is a sort of problem trying to translate the Christian doctrine into Japanese. The, the concept of one God that's exclusive, you know, it's not like a god among many. Basically, monotheism was a kind of alien concept to the Japanese. Although, what they did have was a concept of a cosmic Buddha that encompasses all other Buddhas. And according to a very popular theory in pre-modern Japan, all the kami and all the Buddhas and all the bodhisattvas are, in fact, manifestations of this one single cosmic Buddha, the great sun Buddha. So originally they would translate the concept of God as this cosmic Buddha. To the, to the, and what ends up happening is that many people originally think that Christianity is a new form of Buddhism. Uh, at some point we think that people were able to get straight that no, this is actually a different religion entirely and it enjoys a brief um, period of flourishing. So many converts are made, especially in these western regions of Japan where certain um, daimyo or feudal lords uh, decide that this is a good kind of ideology to adopt because the Jesuits also bring with them superior shipbuilding and weapons technology. So maybe this will give us inroads with these Europeans if we convert. And if the daimyo converts well, then course the population under them is going to convert as well so christianity is able to have like a kind of a boom uh, early on and in fact the the shogun at the time kind of likes the fact that the christians are getting under the skin of the buddhists who at this time also were major political players and very often could cause trouble for the the shogun um but then the next shogun who succeeds him starts to see Christianity as a, as a threat. They start to look at what's happening around the rest of Asia, and they they come under the impression that the Christian missionaries are kind of the tip of the sphere of, of colonialism, essentially. That first you let the missionaries in, then the merchants come, and the next the, the military will show up. And so there's a persecution, which is what this film Silence was depicting. It's based on a, a very famous novel by um, Endo Shusaku, a Christian uh, Japanese author. So after this great persecution, uh, essentially Christians have to go underground. They have to um, worship in secret. And so what you have is this phenomenon where for 200 years, these communities would um, try to keep their Christian traditions alive in secret 
after this, this period where Japan is closed off to the outside world ends, the kakure, uh, these, these hidden Christians are allowed to finally reveal themselves. And it's found that actually their traditions differ in very interesting ways from what the, the church is, you know, teaching at that particular moment in Europe. So some of these hidden Christians decide to keep kind of separate, um, churches going to keep their, their own syncretic, again, combinatory style of Christianity alive. Although in recent decades, um, the Kakure Christians are kind of, uh, a dying breed, uh, apparently. But after Japan basically lifts the span on Christianity and allows Christianity, Christians to practice openly again, you do get missionizing again. But you never find Christianity attaining that same success that it did in the late medieval period. So Christians today remain active in education and in social welfare in Japan. So um, even though they account for a very small minority of the population, they end up being rather influential. Um, so my university, for example, Sophia University, is a Jesuit school. It's just one example of how um, Christians have succeeded, succeeded in creating these very you know, vibrant and important institutions that have had a big impact on, on Japanese life even if only a small proportion of the uh, population are actual Christian. What's, what's the largest sect of Christianity that's in Japan right now? Uh, we're, we're outside my realm of speciality here. Um, but I, I can say that broadly, Protestantism, uh, Catholicism, and Mormonism are all represented in Japan. I, I couldn't say which, which is the largest sect. Okay, um, we've spoken a lot. It was... A really fascinating discussion. I've definitely learned quite a lot, as Long has said. Let's wrap it up here. Thank you very much for speaking to us, Professor Drott. Thanks for inviting me to speak. That's all for our episode on Japanese religions with Professor Edward Drott. We hope you learned something new from this episode. As always, if you're interested to learn more about Japanese society from an international perspective, Bento Bureau is always hard at work producing new stuff for you guys. If you like this, Please consider supporting us by liking our social media pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we're really trying to get bigger. So all your support is really appreciated. Please, please consider supporting us if you like our content. And if you don't like our content, let us know. How can we improve? We're always looking for ways to improve our content for you guys. Thanks again. 